Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called, I Must Be Born Again. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, March the 12th, 2017, the second Sunday in Lent. I recently had a most ambiguous moment of self-realization that at the age of 61, I've gone to church almost every Sunday of my life. That means that 61 times 52 equals 3,172 church services. I'm grateful for, for, for my heritage. I came by it honestly. My mother was a church organist for 25 years in a small Presbyterian church. Her grandfather was a Presbyterian pastor, and her mother spent 79 years in great-grandpa McGrath's church. My aunt, my mother's sister, <coughs> has been worshiping for 91 years in that same church, ever since she was born. Still, my long-term religiosity has its risks. The gospel for this week is a case in point. A story about radical conversion, you must be born again. In unqualified inclusion, God so loved all the world, has itself become so trivialized by religion that most people today hear it as a tired cliché that's been emptied of all meaning. And so the strong wine of authentic religion always risks being watered down to formulaic religiosity. And note who's responsible for this. Back in January, we posted a review of Richard Holloway's book, A Little History of Religion. Humanity has always been deeply religious, he observes, dating back 130,000 years ago to the funeral rites in which people painted the bodies of the dead with red paint and laid them to rest in special places, with special objects, and in special ways. A recurring theme for Holloway is what he calls the most important insight into God ever discovered by humans, namely the Second Commandment prohibition against idolatry. In note, and now I quote Holloway, its real target was religion, and not just the kind that got people dancing around a golden calf. It was warning us that no religious system could capture or contain the mystery of God. Yet in history, that's exactly what many of them would go on to claim. The Second Commandment was an early warning that the organizations that claimed to speak for God would become God's greatest rivals, the most dangerous idol of them all. End quote. In the Gospel this week, Nicodemus is the consummate religious professional, a conscientious Pharisee, a member of the ruling Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and a teacher 
of Israel. But Jesus says that if he wants to enter the kingdom of God, he must at some level repudiate his religiosity. He must be twice born, once by his earthly mother through water, and then again by his heavenly father through the Spirit. Only the free gift of God's love and no religious effort can do this. It looks like Nicodemus learned his lesson. He's mentioned only two other times in the Gospels. In John 7, he advises his colleagues that they should not judge Jesus without hearing him. And in John 19, he and Joseph of Arimathea tend to the dead body of Jesus. Paul, too, needed a conversion, not to religion, but from his religion. In his book, In God's Shadow, Michael Walzer of Princeton observes that Israel began with two different but related covenants. One with Abraham, based upon kinship, family, and birthright as a chosen people, and another with Moses, based upon a legal covenant, a nation, and a law. In the epistle for this, this week from Romans 4, Paul repudiates both of these religious appeals for divine favor. And he does so with an ironic appeal to none other than Abraham himself, who in the reading was called by God to leave behind all that he held dear. And in doing so, he became the patriarch, not just of the Jews, but as Genesis 12 says, of many nations. Paul once boasted on both accounts. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews who could trace his ancestry to the tribe of Benjamin. As for the Mosaic law, he said he was zealous and faultless. But writing to the Philippians, Paul later repudiated his religiosity. He writes, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss. <clears throat> Counting how many times a word occurs in the Bible can lead to dubious interpretations. But Romans 4 for this week is an exception. At least 10 times Paul uses the word credit to describe our relationship with God. A credit, as Paul uses it, is a free gift. It's the opposite of a wage that's paid for work or an obligation that's earned. No one can curry God's favor by keeping the Mosaic law, says Paul, or by claiming kinship with Abraham, or by any other well-intentioned religious effort, <coughs> including those at Lent. But everyone can receive a free gift, even those pagan Gentiles, says Paul, who were not part of Abraham's ancestry and who are ignorant of the Mosaic law. The Apostle Peter, to take another example, experienced at least five conversions that we know of. On the shores of Galilee, he left everything and followed Jesus. 
In Matthew 16, he confessed that Jesus was not just a rebel rabbi, but the beloved Son of God. Then, after denying that he even knew Jesus, in John 21, Jesus lovingly reinstated him. In Acts 10 and 11, Peter came to accept the Gentile Cornelius and learn that God does not discriminate against any person. And then finally, in Galatians 2, Paul describes how he opposed Peter to his face for his hypocrisy. Having been converted to accept Gentiles and Cornelius, Peter later refused to eat with them. We don't know the details, but somehow Peter was once again converted to embrace the Gentiles, despite some Jewish pressures not to do so. True religion requires lifelong conversion, often from my own religious ideas and practices. I must be born again, from above, again and again, all my life long, in my thoughts, in my words, and in my deeds. May it begin in me this Lent. And for further reflection, along these same lines, we've posted a favorite poem, Prayer of Mine, by C.S. Lewis. It's called Footnote to All Prayers. He whom I bow to only knows to whom I bow. When I attempt the ineffable name, murmuring thou, and dream of Phidian fancies and embrace in heart, Symbols I know which cannot be the thing thou art. Thus always, taken at their word, all prayers blaspheme, worshiping with frail images a folklore dream. And all men in their praying, self-deceived, address the coinage of their own unquiet thoughts, unless thou in magnetic mercy to thyself divert are arrows aimed unskillfully beyond desert. And all men are idolaters, crying unheard to a deaf idol, if thou take them at their word. So take not, O Lord, our literal sense. Lord, in thy great unbroken speech, our limping metaphor translate. For books this week, I review a novel by the author Paul Beatty. It's called The, Sell the Sellout, a novel, New York, Picador, 2015. This book is 289 pages long. The author of this book, Paul Beatty, won the 2016 Man Booker Prize, the first American to do so, for this bombshell of a book that was initially rejected by 18 publishers. His scorched earth satire about race questions every stereotype and cultural assumption imaginable. It breaks every politically correct boundary that you ever feared transgressing. 
Nobody gets a free pass here. Not Condi Rice lying through the gap in her teeth. Not Dave Eggers' do-gooder condescension. Not gangbangers. Not stupid, fat, ugly white Republicans. And it's all laugh-out-loud hilarious. The narrator protagonist of the novel is a young black man named Me, that's with a capital M, who's from a ghetto community on the southern outskirts of Los Angeles called Dickens. It used to be a real town, but has now vanished into suburban oblivion and is, as he says, turning Latino. Me intends to restore Dickens. He begins by spray-painting a line around the place. He then reintroduces segregation into the bus system and the local schools. He wants to separate the races by race. And when he does, in fact, test scores rise and life gets better for everyone. For this, he ends up arguing his case before the Supreme Court which is where the book begins and ends. Me never knew his mother. His father was a sociologist who subjected him to wacky race experiments as a little boy. Me wrote his first scientific paper when he was seven. The title, Passenger Seating Tendencies by Race and Gender, Controlling for Class, Age, Crowdedness, and body odor. As an adult, he's an urban farmer who grows square watermelons with the help of his obsequious slave named Hominy Jenkins, an understudy to buckwheat and the last surviving cast member of the television serial The Little Rascals. Me also attends the Dum Dum Donut Intellectuals that his father started what he calls a cabal of stupid black thinkers who do things like rename literary classics like Uncle Tom's Condo, The Great Blacksby, and The Point Guard in the Rye. There's a sophisticated playfulness that drives Beatty's absurdist story. Faux poetry, various fonts, mottos in at least eight languages, lists, and charts. Although the book is mainly about being black, there's also a chapter on too many Mexicans and references to Samoans, the Maasai, Native Americans, Jews, and incarcerated Japanese Americans. There's also the LA LGBTDL Crisis Center for Chicanos, Blacks, Non-Gays, and anyone else who feels underserved, unsupported, and exploited by hit cable television shows. Beatty incorporates a remarkable breadth and depth of cultural artifacts, history, politics, art, music, film, literature, food, sports, and economics, lowbrow and highbrow alike. So, what's the meaning in Beatty's message? The title gives a clue. For me, himself was dubbed the sellout by the dum-dum intellectuals. Humor can be a front for rage and anger. Me observes that silence about race can indicate protest or consent, 
but also fear. Much of the plot revolves around Mi's relationship with his father and his Oedipal Yen. There are mentions of collective guilt and self-hatred. In one painful scene, a hip white couple is sitting in the front row laughing at the riffs of a black comedian who then explodes at them. What the fuck you honkies laughing at? I ain't bullshitting. Get the fuck out. Do I look like I'm fucking joking with you? This shit ain't for you. Understand? This is our thing. Which begs the complicated question, just what is the black thing? <clears throat> David Pinckney boils it down to the arduousness of being black, the profound self-consciousness of being black, a theme in Margot Jefferson's book, Negro Land. Mee's father always told him that there were two important questions. Who am I? and how can I become myself? At one point, me envies Hominy's cluelessness. He laments all the work he's done to restore Dickens through resegregation, and yet I still don't know who I am. He observes that there's no such thing as closure. By the end of the book, me contemplates the burden of being black, and constantly having to decide when and if I give a shit about it. Indeed. The author is Paul Beatty, winner of the 2016 Man Booker Prize. The title of the novel, The Sellout. For movies this week, I review Moonlight from 2016. This second feature film by the writer-director Barry Jenkins <coughs> premiered at the Telluride Film Festival in September 2016 and then released nationwide two months later in November. Since then, reviews both popular and professional have been off the charts. The tomato meter, for example, clicks in at 98%. The power of the film rests in its ability to make us empathize at a deeply human level with a protagonist with whom we have almost nothing in common. Chiron is black and gay. He's from a rough neighborhood in Miami and has a mother who's a crackhead. His only male role model, and it's a positive influence, is a dope dealer named Juan. School is a place of physical and emotional abuse. Sharon is a deeply withdrawn little boy trying to figure out who he is and where he fits in the world. He asks Juan, what's a faggot? Am I a faggot? The movie shows three snapshots in his life, as a little boy, as a lanky teenager, and then as an adult. At the end of the film, when Sharon reconnects with his best childhood friend Kevin after many years apart, the latter asks him, 
Man, who is you? That car and those gold fronts on your tooth? You ain't what I expected. You can watch this film as an exploration of black male identity. For example, there are no white actors. But at a deeper level, I appreciated the observation of A.O. Scott that every moment of the movie is infused with what the poet Hart Crane called infinite consanguinity, the mysterious bond that links us with one another. Experience, to take four examples from the film, in the feel of an ocean breeze, learning to float on your back in water, the ability of music to evoke memories, and the formative power of geographic place. There are many and good reasons why a lot of viewers are calling Moonlight the movie of the year for 2016. By Barry Jenkins, the writer-director, the name of the movie, Moonlight. And finally, for this second week in Lent, we've posted a poem by my friend Brett Foster. Brett died way too early of cancer. He lived from 1973 to 2015. The title of this poem is Longing, Lenten. The Walk Back, More Loss. When I open the door, it's over. So I set to piddling, tidy end tables, check the mail, draw a bath. The restless energy finally settles as I pass the mirror. I peer into it. My nose touches glass. Not much left, already effaced, not even a cross to speak of, a smudge. A few black soot stains like pinpoints on the forehead. The rest of the blessed ash has vanished to a gray amorphousness to symbolize not much. Except a wish for those hallowed moments to be followed by sustaining confidence. Except spirit, which means to shun its listless weight for yearning awkward, if not more earnest, prayer in fasting in the clear face of dust. The poem, Longing Lenten, by Brett Foster. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, March the 12th, 2017. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.